welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, go to PCAPaintEd.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all you non-members out there, sign up for our free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the Apple Store and Google Play. In today's podcast, we feature an episode from ZK Live with Zach Kenny. In this episode, Zach talks with Jim from Jekko Painting about how Jim got started in the finishing business, the difference between pre-cat, CV, and 2K Poly, his favorite sprayer, and much more. How did you start? How did you get into this business? And how did you build that shop to what it is today, which is a very impressive operation to watch? Yeah, thanks, Zach. Uh, well, you know, I actually started learning to spray when I was like 13 years old, working for my dad, doing industrial equipment. We were spraying like gravel crushers and conveyors and uh, hoppers. And if anyone watches Gold Rush, <laughs> all that kind of equipment, actually, we, I, I learned how to spray that stuff when I was like 13. So that's kind of when I learned the basics of spraying. That was a long time ago. I'm doing the math now. That's 38 years ago. So, uh, yeesh, starting to feel old. What's that? What type of paint were you spraying back then? Back then, it was industrial enamel, which probably hasn't changed a whole lot, except there was lead in the primer. <laughs> we had red. It was actually <laughs> called red lead primer. <laughs> I remember using that stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's kind of where I learned the basics of how to use a gun. I learned on a pressure pot. And uh, you know what? That's been transferable to every kind of finishing I've done ever since. Like uh, I went from there, I got into uh, auto body for a while. And um, honestly, once I started working with wood a little bit in, in the painting trade, I got to work with wood a little bit. I was like, that was it for me. So yeah, I've been in this trade a long, long time. And how long ago did you start your company? I'm just in my 23rd year, so it's almost 23, yeah, it's like, uh, and this is my second company. Um, the first one I started, I was 21 years old, and I didn't have a lick of sense. I just, let's start a company, let's go, and, uh, you know, I just, uh, I was doing a lot of just freelance painting and whatever jobs came by, right, ran it as a proprietorship, and, uh, you know, I got a really good gig doing electrostatic um, painting and some other things that gave me solid contracts. And I was making a lot of money for my age. Like I had, um, I had like six vehicles and just anything I wanted. Right, I was spending money like a moron. And at that age, right, I just figured the gravy train would never end. And then I went through a bankruptcy and that taught me a pretty important lesson. <laughs> so that was my first business. The second one, um, you know, I've been, like I said, this is uh, 23 years now. So um, I swore I'd never go back either. Like I swore I would never be self-employed again after that first time. And then it's in your blood. You just end up coming back. Totally. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyways, um, after a kind of a bit of a break working for a few other companies, just doing some other things, I just... I came back 1998 to Calgary. I was in Vancouver for a couple of years and I came back here and just got pulled right back in and 
you know, I just decided, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to full on do it. Awesome. Where did the name come from? Uh, I get asked that a lot. It's actually not creative at all. It's actually my initial. So my name is James Edward Kerrigan. <laughs> and it really should have two C's, J-E-C-C-O. But that name was taken. So I just went with J-E-C-O. So really, awesome. that's all it is. <laughs> well, another initials company. Respect for that. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I made it my initials and like called it some like memorable, impactful name. But you know what? Once you make your brand, you've yeah. you've made all the impact you need to make, right? Once people know your brand. Yeah. Awesome. So can you just tell us a little bit, some people who haven't followed you religiously as I have and watched every video so closely, what kind of operation do you run? Yeah, so uh, we're a wood finishing shop and um, we're the largest wood finishing shop in Alberta, independent wood finishing shop, I should add, because there's probably some mill shops that have some pretty impressive size facilities that do their own finishing. But we're, we're, we're completely independent. So, I mean, we work for mill shops and cabinet makers and um, carpenters and, and, you know, basically anybody that builds things with wood. So um, who needs a finishing partner? Um, so that's basically it in a nutshell. And that kind of opens up we used to have a much wider scope of work. Like we would do furniture and stuff too, which I actually got away from. Uh, it's a different speed, a different animal. I got out of furniture refinishing and decided to dedicate more time and space into mostly cabinetry, to be honest with you. So. Yeah. I see you guys do a massive amount of cabinetry. Yeah. Unbelievable arsenal of racks, spray booths and pumps. Yeah. Uh, right. up sort of your equipment, how you, how you went, how you got here was it like where did you where did you first start when you moved like did you have one booth four racks was it you started fairly large right away how did you get to the point where you have this amazing setup you have today yeah i'd have to go to the beginning you know i mean i was i cut my teeth as a site painter so and that's probably how a lot of guys get into it to be honest with you unless they get taught in a shop i didn't really um I, I was I learned in a shop how to spray, you know, like I said, back in when I was young. But um, as I got into sight painting, um, I found that uh, my spraying skills were most in demand. So then I was mostly doing wood finishing. And so what happened, what would happen is I would get subcontracted all the wood finishing jobs in these giant custom homes that were going up all over the place. And I wouldn't necessarily be really doing much painting. So that kind of led to the naturally, uh, you know, I should probably get a booth or a shop or something. And I kind of started out a little sketchy, to be honest with you. I rented a garage and kind of did that for a couple of months and realized that was a horrible idea and extremely dangerous. And so um, there was actually a gentleman that had a shop already set up with a fully legal booth, everything, and he wanted to sell it, wanted to get out from under it. So it was $30,000 investment, which really is pretty good considering it, it was fully compliant turnkey operation. It was about uh, 2,200 square feet. So I, I bought into that and paid it off in probably about two or three years. And that's kind of what started it, right? And so it was a smaller operation, had a, 
had a Binks pyramid booth similar to the one that you have, I think. And um, what happens is that it didn't take long before I was so stuffed to the gills in there, I completely outgrew it because of the, you know, since I decided to focus entirely on wood finishing, um, more and more uh, people were bringing that kind of work to us and then we couldn't move anymore. So that's when I started looking at, you know, my other options, which at the time were um, basically there was another business in town. Um, he had about a 10,000 square foot operation. He was retiring, ready to sell everything off. And I went in and looked at it and it was all antiquated and it was all just, you know, I would have had to spend a, a fortune trying to actually bring it up to code or speed. So I decided to just tackle my own. And so the space that I'm in now, that's what we moved into about 15 years ago. Um, I actually got the booths at auction. All I had three of those three spray booths I got for 500 bucks a piece at auction, if you can believe nope. it. Totally lucky. You know, the one, just the sheet metal on one of those booths is 15 grand. <laughs> so I got really lucky there. So I, I had this some of this stuff stockpiled and ready to go. Um, but when I found a suitable space, I negotiated a deal with uh, the landlord. Listen, give me six months free rent. Um, I'll put in the uh, leasehold improvements. And that gave me kind of six months to sort of get that shop built up and running and sort of ready to go so that we could keep working at the other one. And then when the time came, I actually found a buyer to pay exactly what I paid for the first shop and sold it to him. And then we slipped over. So the way it's set up now isn't the way it was when we first got in there. We've added a lot of equipment since then, like the oven and, you know, move things around a little bit, but essentially that was the genesis of it. So now, yeah, our shop's now about 6,500 square feet. And how many booths and how many other, you have a, a big makeup air unit? Yeah, there's two makeup air units. So the really big booth that we often, well, we now almost exclusively have it divided in two. So I literally operate it as two booths now. So I've got three sprayers going full time. So that big booth has a dedicated makeup air unit to it. And then the small booth has its own dedicated makeup air, which is code, right? Yeah, you have to have that. Um, in Calgary, the, the HVAC codes have gotten really strict over the last 10 years where you even have any kind of a workspace at all, you have to have, um, you have to have makeup air. So, so understand what makeup air is. What, can you explain a little bit how, that, how the booths are working? Yeah, so um, we have a spray booth that exhausts a lot of air out of your building. And so in warmer climates like uh, southern U.S. and, you know, other places where they don't really experience winter like we do, they could probably get away with not having one by just having some doors open. And it doesn't create a massive vacuum in your building, right? Um, but here, and well, it's actually code to have a proper setup facility, um, you have to have a unit on the roof that literally replaces the air that you're drawing out of the building 
um, at the same rate so that you can keep stable air pressure in the building. So, um, so as much air as you're drawing out, you're drawing in fresh air. So here where we are during the winter, you can imagine I got like five inch gas lines going to mine because that's a 42 inch fan on that big booth. That's dry. I don't even know. I can't even remember what the CFMs are, but it blows your mind. Like we replace the air in our building about in minutes. So I've got to blast a lot of hot air into that thing in the winter to keep the temperature stable in there, but it works great. So that's kind of how the makeup air works. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I wish I had either found a way to afford it or could have afforded it when I put my booth in to have makeup air. And we're now doing, we're planning a retrofit uh, in the next couple months of a makeup air unit uh, because it, it's definitely, it's a whole, it's a big hassle to do the yeah. craft and open up the doors and let, you know, the leaves from outside come crawling in underneath the door and there's more yeah. dust. And, and then, you know, then, and then there's the negative air pressure in the booth that, I, I'm looking to have the forced air and a little bit of a positive pressure in the booth um, yeah. so that I'm not sucking from every little crevice and the filters, but the little crevices, the little dust comes in. We're always fighting dust um, with the oil. Yeah. In you know, ironically, and this may blow your mind a little bit, I have less problems with dust with an open booth than I ever did with the closed one. <sighs> that probably blows people's minds. And I'll tell you why I think that is. Um, generally speaking, your prep area, your work area, all the kind of where all the sanding and the dust and all that's being created. Well, maybe not by the best planning, but almost all of us have that in front of the damn booth, right? Or at least so that the, the air just gets drawn into it, right? And, and just, it's just out of necessity by sometimes where you have to place the booth in relation to the rest of the, it's not like you're going to, um, place a you know a 24 foot long booth in the middle of your shop you got to sort of get it back against the wall right and kind of build around it especially if you've got a smaller space you know so what happens is that the filters on those doors once they become saturated a little bit and it doesn't take much it starts just firing that stuff off into your finish and um, I discovered this in my first shop. I stopped closing the damn doors. And I had almost no problems after that. So uh, there was two things I learned from that is that I've got to have clean air. And I've got to find a way to stop. Um, you know, because what would happen is it, it would be good when I first blew it all out and cleaned it all out. And then just out of the blue, you're like, you're looking at your piece you just finished. And you're like, oh, that looks great. And all of a sudden, splat. It just comes out of nowhere, right? Especially if you're working with, you know, long oils or you work with a lot of long oils and stuff that, um, you know, is slow drying and it's just laying there open, waiting for something to land on it, right? So um, I think closed booths work great if you've got a way to sort of water everything down and find other ways to keep the dust in front of the booth where it's drawing its air from in any way getting into those filters, which is nearly impossible in a wood shop. Wood and water doesn't mix. <laughs> it just... yeah, I was just showing when I did the, gave the tour, we just expanded it. 
And we used to prep literally right in front of the doors, like a yeah. foot and a half away. Yeah. Now we prep in a separate room around the corner and we have a booth pre-filter on a frame that we put in the door when we spray. And we put that in the makeup air, like at our front door, we open that door now. We don't use the garage anymore. So it's not sucking from the bottom and bringing all that dust in. We have a, a full door frame that we stick in there. That's a pre-filter to our fresh air coming in. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the amount of, it, you go nuts trying to stop the dust. Yeah. And it, it, you ju it, there's many times where we just feel crazy. We might spend hours putting new booth covering down on the floor, spraying the booth covering on the inside, watering down the floors, the, all of this stuff. And then you spray yeah. the floor out and an hour later you see the dust and you just want to rip your hair. And, you know, you can do all of that. Then you've got a freshly sanded piece that's completely star charged with static electricity. Right, just just wait. It's just like a positive friggin' magnet, just waiting for anything, and it just zaps onto there. So then I, you know, again, that's part of the learning process. So you start learning about how to deal with static, and what causes it, and what's create what creates it. So there's some primers are better than others for um, releasing static electricity when you sand them. They don't create as much. Anyone who knows, if you finished a piece and you have to sand it again, like it's finished coat of some kind, that's when you're gonna have your biggest problem with dust because finished coat creates a lot of static electricity, any kind oh, of- The last wipe that we do is with an anti-static rag now. Yeah. Testing and it's like night and day. Yeah. Anti-static rag and anti-static rag. So yeah, it's definitely a huge difference when the piece is not sucking dust to it. Oh yeah, I know. I mean, we're starting to see more and more high gloss now, right? So, um, and, you know, economically speaking, you want to try and do the best high gloss you can off the gun. If yeah. we're into cutting and polishing, I'm sorry, it's $150 a foot. We'll talk later. Like, seriously, I mean, you, you can't charge enough for that. So, um, so there are some good products now that are giving you really, really high glassy glosses off the gun. And um, more and more demand for doing it. And, you know, people see me doing it in an open face booth and they think I'm nuts. Um, but, I have. <laughs> but I'll tell you, we actually don't really have a problem with dust. I mean, we, uh, we filter the makeup, like the makeup air units on the roof actually have replaceable filters. They look a lot like furnace filters. They're about three inches thick though. And you got to make sure you, you got to get up on the roof every so often and replace those puppies. But um, other than that, uh, we're not set up ideal either. You know, as you can see, it's the same thing. I got my booths back against the back wall. I've got my prep area, not right in front, but it's off to the side. Um, I'm not going to say we're 100% dust free because that would be lying. Um, but we've been able to mitigate a lot of that by using only vacuum sanders and downdraft tables and you know i mean there's some hand sanding and stuff that goes on but it's, it's not enough to it's a big enough space that it doesn't contaminate the whole area so i mean the guys know if somebody's spraying finish coat you're just gonna lay off sanding in front of isa's booth for a while the big booth is kind of out of the way so there's there are still certain things we got to watch out for 
But yeah, I found it uh, whenever I had doors closed on a closed booth, I had so much more problems, man. It was just, I would just spend so much time cleaning those filters and <laughs> it was just crazy. Because it goes through eventually, right? You think the makeup air unit will solve my problems? Well, the makeup air unit will stabilize your air pressure. So that's going to solve part of your problem. Um, because you're going to be able to sort of control where that makeup air is coming from, uh, depending on where you place it. Um, that's going to be crucial, right? So you might want to place it in a place that's maybe a little bit behind the booth. I mean, the guy, if you have a contractor doing it, they'll probably be able to give so you the best. I'm force makeup air right directly into the booth. Okay. Well, yeah. Ducted in directly to the there booth. There you go. That's even better. No longer be filtered doors. They're going to be like yeah. tight. They're very expensive and they're going to like seal perfectly. There Which you go. Seal right now. You can see there's these rubber flaps that like, like ride along the concrete. It's pathetic. Yeah. But the, the new doors should close, be absolutely airtight. And then I'm going to blow my makeup air directly into the booth at the top and then suck it out the back. Yeah. So semi downdraft. That and should be great. That I won't have the dust that I have today. You're going to, the other challenge, you always got to trace back to each step. So your other challenge is you may have to put some baffles on the roof. You're definitely going to have to pay attention to the filters in your, uh, in your makeup air, like constantly, um, depending on like certain times of the year, it, there's no problems at all. This time of year and pollen starting up, um, pollen's a bitch that just gets everywhere. So that's where we end up. It's when the pollen's flying that we start having fun. Yeah. Most of the times, especially in the winter, we actually uh, we actually don't really have too much problems at all with dust. That's awesome. So you guys, you have like large downdraft tables, right? Yeah, well, to be honest with you, I actually designed them myself on a napkin, literally. So I had the tin bashers in. Uh, they were doing the duct work for our booths, you know, uh, getting the ducts out and uh, installing the makeup airs. And when those guys came in, I kind of drew a picture of what I wanted, you know, because I, I had a 15-horse dust collector that's dedicated just to running those two tables and our vacuum sanders. So that's some serious suck suction there. And um, so I basically drew... Um, you know, these tapered tables, they're literally four by eight on the top. And we just drilled a shitload of holes all over the the tops of those things. And you can literally feel the, the suction when you're near it. Like if you, it just, it'll suck a piece of paper right down onto it. And then um, what I did is I took vacuum flow attachments and I plugged those into the duct work that's coming down to feed the downdraft tables. And I can run uh, four vacuum sanders off of that. So, I mean, I'm telling it's it's unbelievable. So what we do about once a month, we pop the canisters off the dust collector because it's so fine, and we shake them out, clean them out, and then put them back on, and uh, you're back up to full suction. That thing's been running for 15 years, 11 hours a day, five days a week, without stopping. It's been a good machine. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I, my downdraft table definitely uh, 
I don't think it has that much suction power. It, there's 3,000 CFM to suck that decent size. Um, I'm not sure if it's sucking a piece of paper down. It's definitely doing, you know, it's doing much better than not. Oh, yeah. Uh, and we've we've recently started using it a lot more since it was it was like up against the wall before. And now we've turned it so it sticks out from the wall so someone can stand on each side. Yeah. Um, and I just got these Rockler cookies last week, these little rubber like, yeah. that space it up off of the ground a little bit. And those things have been amazing. So you can sand the edges of cabinets real quick uh, and the cabinet stays where it needs to be. Um, yeah, I have a bunch of those. I got them from Hefele. I, I can't remember what that – I think we just ended up eventually just losing them all. <laughs> I don't think or, Wrapped in car uh, carpet or something? Pardon me? Do you, do you have, like, wood blocks wrapped in carpet that you space your pieces off the sand? Yeah, not not even that sophisticated, honestly. It's uh, – we just use, yeah, wood blocks or dunnage and whatever, and uh, we wrap them in the white rags that we use for staining. So they're just loosely wrapped, too. So that that way, you know, I mean, if you're doing a stain job or whatever and it's kind of staining it up, yeah, toss the rag around, wrap, and, wrap a new one around. Or if you're changing from stain grade to paint grade, it's, it's just easy, right? I mean – really low tech <laughs> so what kind of paint and what kind of paint sprayers all that those are two very big topics but yeah um let's start with uh, sprayers sprayers well i was a banks guy for many 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 years i had invested many thousands of dollars into Binks equipment i had Binks pressure pots i had Binks guns i had uh, conventional guns i had a bunch of Raptor pumps. I had 412s. I had Comet 3s and Comet 5s. I had every Binks that there was. And that's kind of how I got mostly into the air assist stuff. And, you know, I loved the finish in the, in the, that I could do with it. And I was happy with it for a long, long time. I just got used to the, I just kind of got used to the fact that they break down a lot. And so I had people um, in the industry who were going, you got to try this Kremlin. You got to try Kremlin. I'm like, I've got all my money tied up in Binks. I don't want to start, you know, every time you buy a tip, it's a hundred bucks, right? So I don't want to have to start buying a bunch of other equipment. And uh, eventually, I um, one of my main uh, heavy pumps, the, the Binks pump broke down. So I got a Kremlin. And uh, I was absolutely freaking loved it right off the bat and i bought a bunch of them at an auction from um i think i bought four or five pumps from auction from a company that was closing down their uh operation and i um got them all kind of cleaned up and put together and those things i've never rebuilt one of them and that was 10 years ago not one i was rebuilding my binks pumps twice a year so I just, I actually recently, there was a guy in town who's starting up a shop, Splash It Painting. Um, he took me up on my offer. I said, anybody who wants this stuff, come and get it. He showed up. I gave him everything I had banks. Like I literally loaded his van, pumps, guns, everything working, not working, parts. Just here you go, man. So he was pretty happy. He's setting up uh, a facility in town here. So hopefully it'll do him some good. That's awesome. Yeah, you uh, you definitely put those Kremlins uh, through the ringer, man. You guys spray all day, every day, huh? Yeah, we do. Yeah, the only thing, you know, um, 
the only thing I probably would recommend is that you got to go for the industrial ones. You know, those 30 to ones are okay for clear and light finishes, but don't expect them things to carry the load for you if you're doing a ton of volume um, on heavy stuff like pigmented. So the 2025s is where a guy should start. Those 2025s are unbelievable, man. They just work and they ask nothing from you. Just keep them clean and take care of them, oil them and keep them clean and they'll just run forever. I, I consulted you heavily before getting into Kremlin and I'm so glad that I did because I, I did end up with a 20C50, I think it is, or 25, <laughs> big boy. And I love the analogy that you said. I tell everyone all the time now. Uh, you can tow a trailer with a car, but it's better to tow it with a truck. And thinking of the the 15 to 1 or the 30 to 1 as towing the car with the, towing the trailer with a car yeah. versus bigger pumps being the truck where you're going to do it all day, every day. It's built for it, and the wear and tear won't be so bad. Uh, it yeah. was a like I said, I do run two of the 30 to ones, and we just use them for clear and, see and sealer. That's it. Nothing else goes through those. So, yeah, <clears throat> other than that, I've got I've about five of those heavy ones, and I've got one great big mother. <clears throat> I just recently uh, learned the model number of it that used to run a Scheffler line by itself. It could power eight guns. Anyways, I've been thinking about what to do with this thing because it was another auction. I've, I've done well at the auctions, by the way. <clears throat> it was the same auction where I got my oven, which is probably the other thing you want to ask me about. And uh, this uh, this came off of a Scheffler line, but it was in my lot. So I've had it sitting on a shelf for about 15 years. And I've looked for a buyer, and it's like who's there's very few people who could buy a pump like that. And I've decided at some point I'm either going to use it to run a line of my own or I'm going to convert it to primer and just have this beast mounted on a heavy cart that can kind of move from either booth and and it could run two or three primer guns if we're doing a large you know, paint grade job, something like that. But, um, yeah, it, it's a big one. How about paint? What do you, what do you, what's your go-tos? What type are you using pre-cats? Are you using conversion varnish? I know you're using a lot of conversion varnish. Yeah. And why different, like, what's your thoughts on the different types of coatings out there? And, um, you know, yeah. Use? Well, we're going through a bit of a uh, change right now. Uh, we haven't made it all that public and we certainly haven't talked about it a lot on our feed um, but, um, we've, we were nothing but post cat forever, like conversion varnish forever. And, um, as pre cats have started to improve, we've started offering that as a builder's grade finish. And I'll explain what I think the difference between the two are. I think most people know. Um, so, you know, conversion varnish is still our go-to on cabinetry because it, especially after we bake it in our oven. It's super hard, super durable, resistant to a lot of stuff. And uh, whereas pre-cat is, it's good. I guess if you, you go good, better, best, you got pre-cat, good, conversion varnish, better, polyurethane, best. That's kind of how you look at it in the, in the sort of cabinetry and finishing industry that way. 
Um, so we use all three now, whereas I always used to just stay in one lane. And it really depends, you know, on, on your client and your different needs. So we've got clients that do a lot of track housing and multifamily stuff. Th those guys, it's pre-cap, right? I mean, it's economical. It keeps our price in line. And um, it, it's, it, the numbers work. <clears throat> if we were doing post-cap, what I used to do, no matter what kind of uh, project, I was using post-cap because I just, I knew it was better, and I think they would appreciate better. But then I couldn't make any damn money, or I wouldn't get the jobs because the numbers didn't work, right? So I had to sort of pull my head out a little bit and kind of realize, you know, good, better, best is probably the best approach to take so that pricing levels according. Um, so we're still mostly on the conversion varnish. Um, and now the polyurethanes or acrylic urethanes mostly – uh, we're using on uh, the resin tables and the live edge stuff anywhere like tabletops, anywhere that's got moisture or wear, high wear areas, anything like that. Um, we use acrylic urethane on that. And uh, the brand that we've been extremely happy with is CVAM. And a lot of people haven't heard about it, but it's out of Italy too, you know. Some of the the darlings on uh, IG are Melesi and uh, and Renner and uh, some of these other ones, but um, CVAM is out of Italy as well. And in fact, uh, I understand they supply a lot of these guys with their resins, ironically. So um, we're really happy with that. Um, well, I haven't seen any really good urethanes or polyurethanes out of North America that can compete with the Italian stuff. And I'm, I'm sure you've found that too, right? Yeah. So. Jim, we, do you have more time than an hour if we talk for a little longer? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. I, I feel like if, if we have to make this in an hour, we got to move. But I want to dig deeper into so much of the things that you're talking about. Okay. Uh, okay, great. So I, I love what you just described earlier about I used to be CV only. We're going to give great because you, we should be coding really great. Yeah. And, and it's, I believe, like you believe now, to give the client what they want and what they're willing to pay for and to give them value. That's to give them value, right? Yeah. And because we need to make money. For so long, I was so willing to sacrifice, as Nick Slavic says, be a martyr to the paint world just to put out a better finish that the client wasn't willing to pay for and didn't want. So I love the fact that you you're honest and we do the same thing to clients. Like, look, what do you want? What are your parameters? I can tailor a paint job to meet your budget and expectations and knowing the different types of coatings out there, you can then do that. So I, I love to hear you say that pre cat this is what we tell people. We don't, we don't, I'm small enough that we don't do the, the good anymore, but that pre-cat is, that's entry level. And then, you know, we can do better. And then, you know, 2K poly's over here. And as a professional, I think there's, we add a lot of value to the market by understanding our craft and translating that for the client, right? And not just going, this is the one thing I do and this is all I do and everyone should take it or leave it because now you're not giving the client value. Yeah. And it's tough to be profitable that way. Well, and you know, when you have to do the kind of volume that we do, there is a little bit of high volume, low margin work that needs to flow through the shop 
that helps pay the bills, right? I mean, we do a lot of high and mid-end stuff too. Um, but as you know, it's difficult to fill your shop just with that kind of work. Um, if you manage to do that, you'll find yourself in a bit of a jam too, because um, the time it takes to do that kind of work is much longer than it takes, you know, your turnaround time. So you, you really got to manage your uh, production schedule really, really well. Like, for instance, we have a project coming up. Um, I'm actually going to be incorporating some virile metal into it, actually. This yeah. is a crazy high-end, high-end home. And um, it's going to be all high-gloss everywhere. And there's going to be virile metal brass inlay and all the kitchen doors and accents everywhere. We still haven't figured out logistically how we're going to do it, but we're going to figure it out. And um, the cost on that is going to be, I don't know. We haven't figured it out. So, I mean, right now we're going through the drawings. And I'm just going, forget everything you know. <laughs> because we're going to start over. So, I mean, you know, we love that kind of work. And maybe there's a big dollar attached to it. But at the end of the day, I don't know if there's a big dollar on the bottom line with that kind of work always, right? Because especially if they're all one-offs and you're kind of learning a different process each time because i mean we do so much custom stuff that there's a lot of one-offs i mean i've invented finishes just uh, from customer describing stuff that they want to do and you just kind of mad scientist your way through it right so it's uh it's nice to have a little bit of volume to kind of go through the shop and keep things moving while you're working on that other stuff too and the varieties it's way more fun it's just it's way more fun. I think the guys appreciate all the weird stuff that we have going through there. And I've talked about this before, but I think that is the definition of craftsmanship is taking your knowledge and your skill and giving the client value and meeting their expectations. So it, it's almost, it's a higher skill thing to do to be able to offer good, better, best Yeah. At, on, a, on a certain level. And, and, and it's because I, I think you have to know, you know, to tell a guy today, we're going to spray pre-cat. Tomorrow, you're going to spray CV. And the day after that, you're going to spray 2K Poly. That guy better be pretty skilled. He's yeah. not a machine. He's not a monkey just repeating things over and over. He's having to use his brain. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what makes us different than a lot of uh, finishers that are out there that might be working in dedicated facilities to their company right like their mill shop may have their own finisher or as part of a production or manufacturing where they they have to do a lot of the same thing every day not always i don't want to pigeonhole everyone into that but well we do so much different every day um every day is so different that yeah you learn a lot like i'm I, you never stop learning i'm learning all the time like this barrel metal thing i know you've experimented with it I'm just, I'm going to pick your brains on that later. Um, Cause I just got my shipment today and I'm going to start sampling and playing around with it. It looks really exciting. It looks really cool. And I hope it turns out the way it looks. Um, but I, I, you know, I'm still skeptical until I actually do it. It definitely has a learning curve. Um, we should talk about Veramel for a little bit then. Yeah. Uh, I, I've sold two jobs now with it. And uh, I think we've sold a third one. Uh, we're making samples of some manganese. The guy has exterior black paint on his very modern house. And uh, the guy didn't do a very good job applying it. And they want us to come and make it look nice. And, and I was 
showing them some barrel for an accent wall inside. And I was like, you know, we could do, he's like, I want black metal look. And I was like, well, how about manganese? So I'm making a sample for him. But we're doing a, a little vanity um, for a designer I've been looking, trying to work for for a long time. This is our in with her. She's super high end. And they want this like almost white gold, silver looking coating on this very like intricate fluted vanity. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, it, I mean, you have to experiment with it. The tough thing is it's, exp it's an expensive product to experiment with. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not, God, I think we figured it's like $500 a gallon or something by the time you look at what it actually costs per gallon. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, definitely experiment. Um, I know it's, it's very important that we have a, a it's a polyester resin. So you need to have a robust two-part primer underneath it. Um, Drew's is on here. He's also an expert at this. He's been doing a, a few of these jobs. Um, and, and then he was, they were taught us at the, at the certification that you, you want to spray into your wet edge on an angle, um, which doesn't make a lot of sense as a finisher to, to spray like that. Um, and I think actually Jack has found that it's better not to, but spraying it and different tips and trying to keep the wet edge with the polyester that's drying fast is tough. Yeah. Um, and to get it in one coat thick enough that you can then work it down. If you, anything, anytime they want that polished finish, super hard. Yeah. yeah just not on verticals. Super hard to get it smooth enough where you can get it, knock it down to be smooth and enough mills that you're not burning through. That's the tricky part is yeah. finishes. Like we're doing a text, a slightly textured um, bronze wall and boy, it's going to be so much easier than if it was a polished bronze wall. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so far the stuff I'm looking at doing is uh, probably all going to be reasonably polished or even burnished for sure. Yeah. So um, Robert, uh, I spoke, I've spoke to him quite a bit and I know you have as well. Um, you know, he, he told me about the trick of using uh, acetone to, uh, to sort of break the, uh, the seal on the uh, binder after it's cured to expose the metal. I know they give you some rubbing oil and you can sand and whatnot. Um, some of the, I think some of the tricky areas that are not easy to sand, I think hopefully the acetone trick will work because essentially what we're going to be doing is some kind of a molding, some kind of a thin molding that we're going to made out of wood or MDF and we're going to turn it into brass. And then it's going to be pressed into these gloss shaker door panels. Um, so steel wool is your friend in those situations. Uh, all the little detailed stuff, we found steel wool works. I think Jack can correct me if I'm wrong, but we found the acetone to be kind of a pain in the butt when, you know, trying to wipe that off with the acetone. That that's not very easy. Yeah. Uh, and even then it leaves you, leaves it very dull. Like you still are going to have to polish that up to a sheen. Yeah. So the, one of uh, Dan Ross's guys, actually, when I was being certified for Midas metal, we were doing a crown molding and they were teaching us to step up the grits to get the polish and he went over, grabbed some steel wool, and, like, got it up to polish so much faster than stepping up all the grits. Okay. So steel wool is, is definitely really good for anything that's detailed. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Th thanks for that tip because uh, I'm going to be uh, experimenting with it. Um, I might even spray some tomorrow or Friday just to, you know, bugger around with it a little bit. I've got a four different alloys I want to try. And uh, one of the things that I want to, uh, you know, kind of market here in Calgary is uh, uh, hood fans. I mean, <laughs> right? I mean, the metal. Uh, brass or bronze hood fan. It's amazing. Yeah. So uh, try, you know, if you want to make one, <laughs> you want to make one out of bronze, it's going to cost you a damn fortune. But if this kind of gives it the people the option, right? So I don't know, I'm going to play around with it. And uh, I'll be showing some of what I do. I'll probably film some of it and not put it up live <laughs> right away until it, I see how it turns out. And I'm like, okay, I can do this now. Then I'll put it up because um yeah it's uh it's just completely different animal for me right so but i'm kind of excited to play with it yeah it's fun um that's awesome yeah jack said that there's some nylon brushes that work well yeah the acetone it kind of makes a mess i i would try to abrade it off in some way um yeah. over the acetone uh it gets like sticky and, and it, it's then you, if you go too far you end up wiping it off um, I know they say the acetone, but I, I have not found a lot. I've not had a lot of luck with that oh. either. Did you wait the next day? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We, we always, we, I mean, I've done some samples where, um, under infrared light, you can cure it up pretty quick. Yeah. Um, everything that we did in certification and most of the samples that I've done have been overnight dry. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for tips. I'll keep you posted on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, Let's talk a little bit more about coatings. I feel like we, we went over like the broad pre-cat yeah. PV 2K polys. Um, I think painters in general, it's good for them to know because understanding what makes up the different paints and why they cost what they cost and, and why you use them here versus here helps us to sell. I mean, I have to go sell a client on a 2K poly cabinet job when my competition is selling a pre-cat lacquer or maybe even like trim paint from Benjamin Moore. Yeah. And understanding coatings helps me to outsell my competition. Um, could you just kind of give us an overview of the different coatings and what separates them? Yeah. Well, and then uh, in five minutes, we're going to have to stop and just reboot up again. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. No, pre cat is, uh, you know, really, pre cat is for base case and trim in houses. That, that's the way I look at it. It's not the best for cabinetry, but there are some good pre-cats out there that perform fairly well. Um, that being said, I, I sprayed pre-cat for many years before I got into post-cat. So, um, but it's just, I mean, you can do a quick test, take some lacquer thinner on the rag and you'll wipe pre-cat right off. Uh, if, if you get up into post-cat, it's much harder, much higher build um less it's way more stain resistant and uh you can't scratch it nearly as easily as pre-cat so i mean that's that's why it's generally the go-to for cabinetry when you get up into the polyurethanes well it's even harder still but also yet flexible a little yeah. bit it moves with wood a little bit better than cvs especially if cvs get overbuilt which can happen yeah because uh, you have Cap to the amount of mills you can put on a CV, right? Yeah. If if they get overbuilt, they're prone to cracking. Some are better than others. Um, whereas the polyurethane, 
well, they'll just let you pile her on and uh, it, it tends to live with the wood really well. And it's even hard, it's even a little bit harder and more durable uh, than um, the CVs and it's also more moisture resistant. So, you know, steam from your kettles and those kinds of things, it's gonna hold up much, much better to that. Uh, but it's also uh, still quite a bit more expensive, although it is coming down. I think some of the Italian stuff on the market that's becoming more prevalent here is definitely improved it. Yeah. And as it was explained to me, a, a conversion varnish has an acid bond. Yeah. That would be like bonding like this. And a polymer bond is what 2K Poly has, which would be bonding like this. Yeah. I always make that demonstration to a client and they can understand the difference. This is going to be more brittle. This is going to have some flex to it and it's going to really keep, it's going to be more, much more durable. And yeah. we, we try to tell people like, look, you're going to pay us all this time and money, all this money for labor. Like why don't, why don't we just upgrade to 2k poly for my clients? It, they want it. And it also helps me be different. Um, but yeah, the difference in 2k poly and conversion varnish um, you know, it's definitely, a, when you start to talk about it, it helps me sell for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We're, uh, we're a little bit different in that our clients are usually cabinet makers, right? And yeah. uh, so these guys got to compete on the market with everybody else. And so, I mean, if you're going high end, you can sell high end, but if you're, if you're competing with everybody else and bidding on kitchen jobs, mid to high end and nobody's really comparing whether or not you're looking at apples and oranges. They just want a price. Um, this is where all of that gets lost, right? So that's, that's where some of the higher end designers actually will make specs about what they want. And then that really narrows down who can do that kind of work. Yeah. So uh, that's where we're starting to find more stuff coming, landing on our lap, really some of that kind of stuff. So, Pre-cat lacquer, I have a buddy, uh, you might know him, Nick from NWR. Um, yep. And he'll, he likes to talk, we talk about coatings all the time. And he thinks that uh, pre-cat lacquers look the best or have the potential to look the best. Um, we often will say, we'll often upsell clients from 2K Poly up to oil enamel. That's the most expensive finish we have is in oil enamel. Um, and we'll just, we'll tell them that, you know, a 2K poly might have a slight plastic feel, look and feel to it. It is a, a polyurethane. Um, what are your thoughts on pre-cat lacquer looking richer and nicer as a finish? Hmm. I'm not sure what he's talking about there. Um, I know Nick does a lot of great work and I'm not sure which product line he's using that maybe I'm not familiar with because that's not been my experience. I will, however, say that recently we've started using a pre-cat that does look and feel a lot like uh, CV. And um, we've been pretty happy with it. It's got a lot of solids. <clears throat> the primer has got so much solids in it that you actually have to thin it one-to-one. -one. It's so heavy. I've never seen a pre-cat primer like that. Um, but um, honestly, I've always been able to tell pre-cat as soon as I look at it. Um, most of the time, I don't even have to take thinner to it to know it's pre-cat. Um, and honestly, it, it really comes down to the build. So pre-cats by their nature just don't have as much solids as, 
as the CVs. And um, so unless these guys are putting multiple, multiple coats on, I, I just, I'm not sure how you can compare. So I'll have to, I know Nick, I'll have to ask him about what he's talking about there. Yeah, I'd love to have you guys talk about that because I think he talks about maybe more in the clears than anything, the mm -hmm. a look to it than a plasticky look from a 2K poly. Um, I, I oftentimes will, I do sell, I try to upsell the, I, when I talk to clients, I'm like, 2K poly, most durable, blah, blah, blah. But if you really, really are particular, an oil enamel will have a greater depth of color um, and will really be, will be a richer finish at the end. When you touch and feel an oil enamel, there's nothing like it, you know, and that, and we'll, we'll kind of talk up oil enamel as like the gold standard for coatings as far as richness and high end, um, you know, but I can be full. You the know. amount of labor you have to put in, I, I'm absolutely blown away. Like the amount of labor that you guys have to put in finishing one door with that is just like, I know you're getting enough money to justify it. Um, I'm just, I'm still just floored that um, there's enough people that want to pay that to have a door like that. And uh, you're, hey, good on you, man. You're in that market and you're taking advantage of it. Um, I just don't see that here. I, I, you know what? I, I was talking to my wife about this. I don't know if it's old money versus new money and a different kind of mentality that comes with it. There's not a lot of old money here in Calgary and in Alberta. It's a lot of new money, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of self-made people. The thought of spending six grand to paint a door would make them blow their brains out. No matter how, no matter how rich they are. Right. They're just yeah. pragmatic than that. So you're in, you must be in a market where maybe there's a lot of older money. I, I'm just here. Am I right? Yeah. There's that Boston, New England in general, right, is is much older money. That that's where the people first kind of got here and started spreading. Yeah, yeah, we have uh, definitely have more old money. We have more people that, I mean, I think craftsmanship. It's 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 a fairly safe argument to make that there's a higher percentage of of quality craftsmen per capita in New England than anywhere else, because that's where all the craftsmen. Everybody came to a New England first, and then the craftsmanship and the people sort of spread from New England. So if you go down to like Florida in the South, like it's super hard to find super like really good craftsmen. I'm not saying there's not any, there's, they're everywhere. Great craftsmen everywhere. But per yeah. cap, I think that the standards in New England are really, really high. You can find lots of, of very knowledgeable, you know, a lot of stuff passed down. Um, and so it's not like it's sort of it's when it becomes common when people just know you know you walk down the street in Beacon Hill in Boston and there's fine paints of Europe doors, you know every other door. Yeah. When and that's the standard, they're just like, well, I want that, and yeah. then they well that costs four, five, six thousand dollars. Okay, like it's it's just sort of out there in the zeitgeist like that, that this is a thing. Yeah. Um, and I I know Rhode Island in contrast is very is different um we have a much tougher time selling gloss doors i have it's so easy for me to sell a gloss door in boston and rhode island it's a much tougher sell not yeah. impossible but it's definitely like people are i can i understand that market a little more where you're at i think people are a little more just like what you know i don't get it yeah yeah i know but you know by by the same token though 
we sell more wood doors here, like grandiose wood exterior door units here, probably than anywhere else in North America. And it's probably the worst friggin' place to have them. <laughs> they all fail. They all fail, and it's just a matter of time. You know, you can do the most amazing coding job on them, and they all fail. But they got to have them. So, I mean, yeah, there, there's, there's that too, right? So, um, but I just, I, I was just curious about that because I, I've never, I've, I've never done a door like that the way you've done it, and, um, and uh, I, I don't know. I've, I've done some high gloss doors, but never quite that way with the with the with the oil and the layers and the sanding and the layers it's almost like it's almost like doing a grand piano yeah i mean that's what we sell we call it piano finish We're, we started calling it now our signature finish um i actually i just i ordered these coins we're getting custom zk coins that they're antique brass and antique um like nickel silver and we're going to be drilling out a uh, hole in the side of our doors on the jam or the strikes, the, um, the hinge side. Yeah. And we're going to be like epoxying in these and it's going to have the year that we painted them. So I just ordered a bunch of 2020s. Oh, nice. So we're trying to make ZK door yeah. because yeah, I'm selling doors for four to generally 3,500 to $6,000 to paint a front door. Like a lot has to come with that. Yeah. We're selling a piano finish, our signature, piano grade finish but on top of that like we have to have the show right you know i can't show up like dressed all raggedy and like you know i it all has to be like as my my good consultant once told me if you're going to sell lamborghinis you have to sell them from a lamborghini dealership yeah i think a big part of it is that so i think and i i did want to touch on that um uh, if we can who is your client when your client is not the end user it's a lot harder to sell expensive stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I'm, if I go to a GC, we don't do much work for GCs because I'll put together a beautiful bid for a GC. We're going to give them an amazing project. But I hand them a piece of paper, and the GC now has to go sell my job to the client versus if I get to meet that client and I get to talk about the coatings and I get to like show my passion for what I'm doing, and then I hand them a piece of paper, it's a much easier sell. So I, I empathize with your situation because you're dealing with a middleman of sorts between the end user. And so that end user might even want your Lamborghini, but if the cabinet guy who buys your service doesn't know how to sell that Lamborghini to the client, he, you know, you'll never sell it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So we, well, we, and you know what, we got all different levels, right? So, you know, we've got uh, guys here that, uh, you know, we'll be pounding together a sixplex and need all the cabinetry done for that. So we'll we'll do that for him. And then we've got, you know, a five or six million dollar home with full of high end furnishings and cabinetry, and and we'll do that. Whereas, so you yeah, you got to be really nimble and have different approaches. And one of the things that um, I've found to be very very important is, uh, and almost no finishing shop has it. I can tell you, no finishing shop in the city has it. Is a professional inviting environment to walk into. Uh, so my clients can send their clients here. I'm meeting more and more of the end users because they're coming down to color consult in our showroom. They can come down and look at samples in a nice, clean, unscary, unsmelly, 
you know, place, right? I mean, most of the other finishing shops, you, you walk into their bay, you're walking right into their work area and you're not sure, you know, where you should go. And it's just, you know, so I found it important to build a showroom and build uh, basically a selection area that, um, you know, I mean, I've got a really nice one now that was kind of handed to me by, unfortunately, one of my clients that um, decided to pull the plug, but we still were doing the same thing before. It just wasn't nearly as nice as it is now. I was a little bit fortunate for that. So I think that is really, really key. That, that it's kind of lends to what you were saying, you know, like it's, it's selling professionalism. It's selling, you know, stability. You know, um, I've been here for 23 years. I'm probably going to be here for another 23. So if you have any problems, you know where I am, right? And uh, you know what? For your next three or four renovations down the road, we've had that. We've had uh, clients come to us for, with different contractors and different renovators over the years, but the same client who insisted that they had to bring everything to us. And, um, and I think that's part of, you know, I, I can see you're doing the same kind of thing. And I, I, I think that is really important that a lot of, a lot of finishing shops have completely missed the mark on that. Yeah. I think I've talked about it before, but I, I think it's the, the sommelier effect, we'll call it. I don't, that's not probably the technical term for it, but that idea that when the sommelier tells you the story behind the wine, the wine magically has more value in your mind and it tastes better. Those are, those are facts. Otherwise, sommeliers wouldn't have a job. So I think it's the same thing with our coatings, right? When the, when the client has been explained, the, the coating system has been explained to the client in a clear way, when they've seen where the work is going to be done or they've seen the work being done with great reverence and great craft in a clean professional environment, and then, and then the schedule gets met, you don't end up a month late, and yeah. – now that project comes in the door, the client's happy the whole time. The what they see, it's subjective, right? Just like tasting the wine is subjective. What they see is so much more beautiful when the whole process has been beautiful. I, I've learned the hard way in business that having a great final product in a bad process, the client doesn't see that. We used yeah. to get way more blue tape put on all of our projects when I was an unprofessional outfit charging not enough money. Now I charge a lot of money and we try to be very professional and we never see blue tape anymore. And yeah. I would argue paint job is not different. So yeah. I think that's a brilliant idea having a showroom um, and being able to develop a, a direct relationship with the end user. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I don't know how many shop tours I've given um, where customers are, you know, <laughs> Let's just say, and I don't know what it's like in Boston, but I can speak to here and some other places I've lived, that the wood finishing industry is pretty unsophisticated. That's going to be my most politically correct term I'm going to use. There are some great guys here in business, and they've got some really, you know, they do some great work. And then, But there's a lot of uh, unstable right a lot of just fly by night unstable um the garage guys and you know people get nervous about well where's my stuff getting finished like who's who who's gonna have all my stuff right and so being able to sort of open that up and it, you know and that's the reason i got into instagram too is i always looked at it as a peek behind the curtain because 
changing finishers for anybody like it's the devil you know is probably better than jumping out and ending up in a worse problem so um that was really my whole intention of instagram and it blew into something much bigger than than i expected um but i think that professionalism is lacking in the industry a lot and if you can bring professionalism to the to your business and to the industry it just leads us all in a better direction and and uh i'm i'm a big believer that i think wood finishing should be an accredited trade um i kind of was picking up that mantle before this whole covid 19 stuff kind of went bananas and we sort of shifted focus for a little while but i'm i'm going to get back on that um, there's some interest there to sort of get wood finishing. Uh, they would call it maybe furniture finishing elsewhere as a, as an accredited trade and have some formal training for it. Because right now the only way to learn it is to work for guys like us. Right. And, and just learn from other guys. And, you know, some, some of these older masters that have just amazing knowledge and tricks that you probably would never think of they're all going and, and they're, some of them are gone and they're, they're, you know, they're passing away or they're retiring. And a lot of that knowledge is starting to get lost and we need to sort of keep it alive because, you know, we don't want to turn this thing into just a, uh, you know, one of those trades that people just, you know, go, oh, God, it's a painter or the finisher, you know, I'm, you, I don't know if it's like that in Boston, but there's some of that here for sure. There's, well, there's, there definitely is. And, well, because I think what you said, like the barrier to entry to be a painter is incredibly low. I, yeah. I example, uh, you know, I'll say I started with a little giant ladder, a paintbrush in a box and a Ford Taurus. And that was like nine, ten years ago. Yeah. But I think that also means that lots of people can just do that tomorrow. And so when the bar is really low and there's lots of people at that low bar, the standards of the whole industry start to look like go down. It, you have to really fight hard. Guys like us have to fight really hard to be up here. And, and in some ways it's, it's good because people have bad experiences and then they come call us, but I'd rather see that not happen and just have good experiences all the time. So I do like the idea. One of my passions and one of the reasons why I'm doing this show is I want to elevate the, the level of craftsmanship in this country I want to level, elevate the perception of painters and what it means to be a painter. Um, you know, what I remember being in college and, and like, or when my, you know, at, with my girlfriend and her friends and like saying you're a painter, I, I was not instilled in me a lot. Like I had passion at work, but it was hard to be super passionate about being, being pr super proud about being a painter. My boss didn't ab absolutely didn't help me feel proud to be a painter yeah. and I think that like there's a lot of skill and craft that goes into what we do and I'm really proud to be a painter today and I my people are proud and I hope they're proud and I'm here to encourage them to be proud to be painters because it's an awesome trait um, and I think that we can just by being knowledgeable and spreading that knowledge and passion and spreading that passion like it will up the level and will let people know like oh wow like I can feel good about being a, a finisher yeah. or a painter. and that let that whole thing i've had people oh painters are over here and finishers are over here and it's like why does that have to be a big distinction yeah i think training will 
would be the thing that uh, really, you know, changes that. Um, I can't tell you uh, how many even coding reps out there have no idea what they're doing. Uh, we've got some good, a lot of good ones here in Calgary, but on my IG feed, I get, and you probably do too, I don't know how many technical questions a day from people all over the place. And their rep says this or the rep says that. And I'm going, oh, my God, this guy's selling coatings and he doesn't even know. Right. So, you know what? I, I'm just happy that I'm a ha I answer all the questions I can. I don't I'm happy to do it because, honestly, some of these guys don't have access to that information anywhere. So it's like IG is their only way to, they'll go on IG and look up something and they'll find us or, or you know, and they'll, they'll, they'll ask questions. And, and uh, you, you know, you see some guys now they're doing podcasts and stuff like that. And I don't really have that kind of time, but um, I'm happy to do this kind of stuff. I'm happy to answer questions. And, you know, we're going to, we, we try to make some of our posts informative um, and, you know, I've had people going, man, you're showing them how you make the sausage. And I'm going, just cause you see, it doesn't mean you could do it, man. Like, you know, somebody who knows what they're doing might see a missing piece here and go, Hey, that's great. Or somebody might actually get a hold of me and go, you know, what'll work better if you try this. And I've had that too. I've had, I've had some, so I've learned a lot too. I never stop learning. You never want to be arrogant enough to think you've got this thing mastered. You know, because there's so much to learn with all the new products coming up. It's uh, there's there's even more now. So, yeah, I think that just by putting our stuff out there, I agree. Like I answer dozens and dozens of DMs a week with people asking me the same questions, which I I'm happy to answer. Sometimes like I'll be in a, the wrong mood, and now I just try to like wait to answer them till later. Yeah, so I'll just send messages. Not a hello, not a hi, not, no constant, anything. Just what's fair, what's fair, what tip, how much did you thin? And I'm like, man, come on. Like, I can only handle those so many times before it starts to wear on you a bit. But I do, I feel really grateful that I have people who are reaching out. Because I remember when I was young and I was studying John Shear's YouTube videos and picking apart every minute of them. And I was just wishing that there was more content and there just wasn't that much. And reading every single forum, every single post on the Paint Talk forum till four in the morning every night. And now young guys can go on Instagram and be inspired. They, we can learn. I learn a ton. Like you said, like I've met a bunch of people from all over the country. We learn stuff all the time, changing the ways we, we do things. You know, I think that what social media has done for painting has been unbelievable. Yeah. Um, how did you get into Instagram? I'm curious. Uh, Dylan at Black Forest and Brad, Dylan and Brad at Black Forest. They kept at me and kept at me. And they're like, oh, come on, start Instagram. It's been great for us. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. I got a website. I can, people want to look at my pictures. They can look at my pictures. And so I, you know, they were at me for almost a year. And then I finally like, um, I actually got some grant money to hire a youth, a student youth grant money. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to use that money. And I'll do a three, it's a, like a three-month contract. I'm going to hire a young person to get us up on social. So um, I hired a young lady for a three-month contract 
she was unbelievable, man. She got, obviously got us off to a great start and taught us all of the rules and etiquette and all that kind of stuff and gave us kind of the basis to get going. Because if it was up to me, I'd probably still be spinning my wheels back in the beginning. And um, so, so what happens is I started kind of just putting stuff up you know at first you're just yelling into an echo chamber anyways you you don't know who's there's a few people looking at it or whatever um but then what happened is uh we started to sort of um branch out and we're tagging um all of our clients and then they start tagging us and then everything well what kind of happened was um especially with Black Forest stuff. I mean, you know, they've got almost 800,000 followers, right? So at the time, I think it was more like 450 when they were kind of, when I was getting started, or around 400,000. And so they wanted to give us a boost. So they were, they were kind of, uh, you know, every time we were doing something for them, they were pumping our tires a little bit, which was really great. And it got people coming our way. So what happened is my, my, how I thought about Instagram completely evolved into more of what this is now. I think it's almost, it's, it's as much about promoting your business as it is about education. I think now it, I used to just think it was just somewhere to share your pictures. And now it's actually, as you can see, I mean, every day it's woven into the grain of our company. Now huh. guys are used to being constantly on film and watching me walk around and talk to myself on the damn, you know, everyone's used to it now the first time i did a story i felt like a complete moron i was like i don't know if i want to do this like i seriously don't want to put my face on the now i'm just used to it right so um yeah it's been a real evolution and and honestly it's been the most effective uh marketing tool we have ever had i dedicate maybe five six hours a week to ig on average and and other than that, it costs zero dollars, and we have gotten more business directly and indirectly from IG than any other count, kind of marketing we've done combined in 23 years. So that definitely changed my thinking of it, and it made me want to start upping it a little more and add a little something here and maybe add some other things to there. I There's more I want to do with it. It's just finding the time, right? Like what you're doing right now is really cool. And I, I was going to do something similar with some of my suppliers. Like I'll invite, you know, um, say, see uh, abrasives to come on and we'll, we'll, do a, uh, we'll do a little bullshit session like this. And, or I'll have uh, somebody from, uh, you know, CVAM Coatings or somebody like that come on. And then they can answer technical questions and, and stuff like that. But um, just running my business is takes so much time that uh, these ideas are kind of still in the can, but I, I still want to go there. Yeah, that's, uh, that is so cool. I, I was dying to hear that story because you are such a, a unicorn in this business. You don't see a lot of, uh, or on Instagram, like you just don't see a lot of guys your age, you know, dedicated <laughs> to Instagram. Like it's beautiful. I talk to people, yep all the time in my local area and i go to the national conferences for painters and i'm like guys you have to get on instagram let me tell you what it's done for my business in my life and they just look at you and they're like yeah whatever so to have seen you i, I mean from the beginning i was like wow like what's this guy doing on here it, yeah. it's cool that you've taken what you do and put it out there to the world because it, it it's not very common 
um, for you, you get the younger people who don't have all the experience, but when you get the older people, you have all this experience, all this knowledge, this impressive operation running and you're working on Instagram. It's, it's amazing. You know, I have a lot of respect for that. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. It's uh, not where I intended to go, to be honest with you. So it's just kind of where it's gone. And uh, yeah, it's been fun. I've actually really enjoyed it. And it's, it's, uh, it makes you want to be better in every way. Right. Because I mean, listen, we all behave better when somebody's watching us, don't we? <laughs> now I got, I got thousands of people watching every day um, on stories and whatnot. And I'm like, and if I don't do stories, like, like maybe I'm sick one day or whatever, I, I traveled or something and then we don't have stories, man. That, the messages I get are just like, dude, where's your stories? Like, I want to know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, I never thought, I'd... you know, sorry, keep going. Yeah, no, I was just saying, I never thought I would do that. That's just, just, just crazy. Now it's just part of my fabric. I have the same story, even though I'm a little younger, but that's the same story I have. My wife started my account. I called them pound signs. I belittled social media too. I'm so embarrassed of the things I said. I, you know, I just like, I didn't want anything to do with social media. I didn't have Facebook. I didn't have an Instagram and I didn't want anything to do with it. Yeah. Uh, he started my account. And I really, the evolution is hard. It's, it's like, it's fuzzy. I don't remember exactly how, but like little by little, it started to catch on. And, you know, now, it, like you said, it's a part of my life. Like it's, and it's a part of my business. And when we hire new people now, you know, I, I'm meeting with Sarah, our new intern today. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to just, I'm going to, I don't need you, but I'm going to ask you to please set up an Instagram account. And I want you to document your process. And, you know, and then you talk to clients. I, I'm, like, like the holy grail client, the best client I could have ever thought of. Could I don't know how to get to them five years. I don't never know how to get to them. They yeah. find me organically through Instagram now. Yeah. And yeah. they have great, like, respect for what I do. They know what I do. I don't have to sit there and talk and, you know, try to earn trust. The trust is consistency over time on Instagram. You can't, if you post as often as we post, like, you have to be the real deal. Yeah. There's no, you know, when you're consistent every day, showing projects you know it's a great way to build trust yeah there's no bullshit because it's it's just it's it's all we put ourselves out there right and uh, yeah I, I used to get criticized for it i don't anymore but i used to uh, why on earth are you putting that out there man like what are you thinking your competition's gonna watch it i'm like good maybe they'll you know, maybe they'll learn something and maybe they'll start doing it. And I can learn something from them. Like, I, I don't, I'm not worried about competition. Um, if you go through life worried about your competition, then you're missing the whole point. I think, you know, if you focus on building your own base and building your own business, your own image, your own brand, it just unfolds the way it's supposed to. It just happens the way it's supposed to. Your competition Listen, we need competition. Every business needs competition. If I didn't have competition, if you didn't have competition, we wouldn't try to be any better, would we? Yeah. So, you know, there's some talented people in wood finishing in Calgary. They're my competition. I actually respect them and appreciate them, and I know most of them and talk to them, right? And, um, you know, I'll, I go on their feeds, and I, I like and make comments on their stuff, too. Because you know what? I respect 
what they're doing. And uh, I don't look at, at them as the enemy. In fact, more than ever now, this whole coronavirus bullshit, um, you, you may look to your right and you look to your left, see who's left. Respect that guy because he got through it like you did. And maybe you guys can help each other going forward because, you know, it's going to be a tough go over the next couple of years. Like, I mean, nobody really knows the nature of the animal that's going to be left. I mean, we didn't slow down at all. In fact, we, we got busier. But that doesn't mean six months from now there's going to be sudden cliff to fall off. We, nobody's can see around this corner yet. So that's my rant on that. Like, I, I just think community, not competition. I, I, I picked that up from somewhere, and I think that's important. Um, you know, I'm not talking about price collusion or anything like that. I'm just talking about you know, bro being brotherhood, right? And and respecting each other and uh, and actually respecting the trade. So the guys that I respect are the guys that respect the trade. When you walk in their shop, you they're running a professional outfit. They know what they're doing. They're good businessmen and they care about their work. Um, we all know there's just a mountain of other kinds of guys out there that are just doing what they got to do to eat and get by, but they don't really respect the trade. It's just a way to, to get paid. And, uh, um, you know, I, I have more problem with those guys. So, uh, you know, respect your competition, I think is really, really important. I, I think that's, I totally agree with that. That's been, uh, that's something that was taught to me. Um, I definitely didn't start off thinking like that. Um, but also, when I was not thinking like that, I also was not focused on getting better every day and only adding value. And I, I, I didn't want, maybe, I think when you think like that, you don't want to grow and get uncomfortable. You want to be able to figure out something that works and, like, nobody come encroach on my things. Then I don't have to get better. But yeah. I love the idea of, like, business in life. Like, this is not a zero-sum equation. If that guy wins a job there, it does not mean that I won't win a job. There's yeah. so much work to go around that I, I'm much more into like figuring out how to better add value to clients, how I can get better and how I can deliver more for my customer or my client. If I can focus on just that and stay in my lane and focus on me and not look over behind me, you know, that's going to slow me down. Yeah. I'm going and I'm going to keep going. And thinking about other people is not going to help, you know, not in a competition way. Um, I actually, this week I reached out to what you might call my biggest competition around here. Um, a guy I, I kind of knew about and I, I reached out and we had this amazing conversation and, and he was like, I'm really glad you reached out and, and we're going to stay in touch now. And it was a, a, a friend of mine, uh, Dan Ross owns a company out in uh, San Francisco, very successful, older contractor runs a big company. And I, I remember the first time he told me that he meets with his biggest comp competitor almost weekly for lunch. And, and I just was like, I, I, how does that work? I, I didn't understand. Um, but I, but he's so good at what he does and he's that running down his lane and his limiting factor in his case. And in my case, in most of our cases is not work coming in good clients. It's our workforce. He's like, I'm more competitive about my workforce with this guy than I have ever am over jobs. And, you know, he might win a job and I'll ask him, where was he at? And, you know, but when you're up here, you're like, you're battling to get better. When you're all by yourself, it's really hard to get any better when you're in a vacuum. So I think that's an awesome thing that you did, that the way you're thinking about it, I agree with you a hundred percent. Yeah. 
and you know what? Sometimes they'll be there to help you. And sometimes I'll be there to help them. Like I've had uh, um, one of my competitors help me out of a big jam last year. And I really appreciate it. And uh, he's a good guy. And, uh, you know, um, I just think uh, it's just, it's just, it's better karma. Just all the way around, you know. It's just better karma. And not only that, you know, when there's shady contractors out there, um, we can pick up the phone and warn each other, hey, if this guy comes to you, I just kicked him out of my place. If he comes to you, run, right? That's there's also the idea that, unfortunately, the way the system is set up right now, a lot of clients are going to go get three prices. Yeah. I would much rather them go get three prices of guys like me that I know that are on the same level as me that are all really, really close then what happens to me quite often is they get three prices and they get two guys that don't have, they're not doing the level of professional work that we do. They're not awesome, but their pieces of paper look fairly similar to mine. Yeah. And their numbers are way off. Yeah. I, that doesn't help me. I would much rather have my, everyone, the whole market be elevated so that when you get three prices, at least you get three prices that are real close. Yeah. Yeah, but we, there's the same problem here. And again, that's when you're you're bidding on a cabinetry job, and you know if they're pricing it out, the guys that are using precat and charging a lot less, um, but nobody asks or says anything on a quote. So I always make sure now I put a note if I'm quoting a job for a new client that I know is shopping around, I always make sure make sure you're comparing apples to apples. This is what we use. And um, if your other quotes are not using the same thing, then ask, right? What are you using? Because um, the, the cost of the product plays into it. It also shows level of workmanship, right? I mean, uh, a cheap ass painter is not going to put polyurethane on cabinetry. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's just not going to do it. And, uh, and even if he did, um, you know, it's going to be real tough for him to make any money at all because you know, without a splash and dash, right? So, <clears throat> yeah, we. I find that uh, it's the same. I, I think it's the same in every trade. You got to make sure that people understand what they're asking or what you're giving them, and, and they and so they can compare it to everybody else. Yeah, it can be really frustrating. And I always used to be, I, I was almost a little arrogant about it. Oh, we're all pre-cat. We don't do, or we're all post-cat. We don't do pre-cat. You know, we don't, that's a cheap finish. And and I've, like I said, I've changed my thinking about that because there are many cases where pre-cat is actually very suitable and very, uh, very good for the kind of work. And, and it gives, gives you economically a chance to, you know, get into the project. So that's awesome. Well, all right been a while now we get to get into our standard zk live questions um let's start with what's your favorite piece of paint paraphernalia it can be a type of paint it can be a, a tool anything that has to do with painting what do you have a favorite oh paraphernalia well you know what my five-way tool that i've probably had for about 35 years that i've got the scars in the in my side that will be there until I die that nobody will ever know what they're from from carrying my five-way tool in my back pocket and sitting down in chairs um, I still have the same one I've had in my toolbox for over 30 years so 
if anyone touches my five way, you're dead. <laughs> That's can you do me a favor and post a picture of that in the next couple of days? Yeah. I, I would love to see it. I think other people would love to see it. I would I've said this before. I could never hold on to five and ones. I've probably gone through fifty five and ones in my career. Um I, I wish I had my first five and one. My kids will never get handed down a five and one from dad because you know, they 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 would disappear on me. Um that's awesome. I think I love a five and one tool. Um I actually just posted a video on TikTok uh, yesterday of Phil ringing out a roller with a five-in-one Yeah, that yeah. has gone viral now and it's nuts. And people are going, I didn't know that's what that was for. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. You can't, wouldn't believe how many people have said that. That's uh, funny. It's crazy. You should get on TikTok, by the way. Yeah, I've, I've heard. I haven't played around with that. Um, yeah, it's a different demographic. You uh, can make gold videos and it's so... I posted a video uh, a day and a half ago, and it has 1.3 million views. It's absolutely blowing up. And I understand what you're saying. Like, I said the same thing about Instagram. Like, the demographic's not there. I have – I'll see the people following me on TikTok, and there are a lot of older women, like adult women mostly. I, I have a much higher women-to-male ratio on TikTok than I do on Instagram. Um so I think it's a it's a it's worthwhile and it's really easy to just take clips of like laying down some like bright red on a white primer and yeah. bang, you know, you never know what's gonna hit. Yeah, I'll check it out for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Do you have a DIY paint tip for people? Um well I don't know if I'll throw out a paint tip, but I would I would put out a finishing tip. Yeah. Um well there's, um, I'd say the thing that I get asked most about, how do you finish MDF and get the edges smooth, right? So I'm going to tackle that one because that's that and caulking are the two most common questions I get asked. Maybe I'll tackle them both. So MDF, because there's different grades of MDF and there are different grades of carpenters out there and we get them all. So um, we try and treat everything the same way. So, for instance, you got a – let's just talk about a gable end, you know, where you've got the raw edge of the MDF, right? And uh, people just have all kinds of problems getting that stuff to look nice and smooth. So the key is sand, sand, sand first. You know, we bring it up to 220, then we prime it. Sometimes we'll knock it down in between, like when we flip, flip it over from one side to the other, we'll give it a little knockdown, prime it again. It gets about at least four or five passes. Very low. When you're laying the, the heavy uh, primer on, and I'm telling you after that, don't sand the primer off. I can't tell you how many guys I've seen, rookies, everyone, then they'll take an orbital to it and they'll grind the sander off and then they'll, <laughs> they'll spray it with finish coat and wonder why it's see-through. Um, what you want to do is build it up on top and get it to sit up there nice. And then when you sand it, you're just knocking down the nibs. You're just denibbing it. You've already done the hard work. I think what happens is a lot of people just undo all the work they put in by improper sanding. That's a great. What's your favorite MDF primer? 
Favorite MDF primer right now is what we're using from KCI. Um, now, because we've only just started using it, I can't remember it, but it's a post-cat primer. We were using Clawlock 2 from ML Campbell for a long, long time. And we're using this stuff from KCI now, which is also a post-cat um, conversion varnish primer. And this stuff just dries nice and quick, fills beautifully, and sits up really nice. So, you know, you, when you knock, there's gives you a lot of room to knock it down, and it powders up beautifully. It doesn't create any static. So right now, that's our favorite. Awesome. How about caulking them? While we're there and we have some time, why don't you tell us about caulking? Every time you do a post about caulking, there's like 150 comments. People just lose their mind over that. Caulking shaker doors. All it's right. the Red Sox of painting. Yes. And what a lot of people don't realize and forget when they're watching our feed, they see us caulking a door, they lose their mind and go, why don't you get doors that have a bevel on the back so you don't have to caulk them? And I'm like, because I'm just the finisher. I finish what I'm given. And so we have to take two approaches when it comes to caulking. Uh, there's actually three approaches. There are some people that prefer their doors to be caulked no matter how they're made. They want it clean. They don't want any lines. And they realize the perils, the potential perils of that um, if it's a five-piece door that can move. Um, the other approach is if there is a clean reveal around the style and rail and the edge, we don't caulk it because then that panel can shift and move in there and it'll never crack as long as it's a nice, even, clean reveal. However, when you get these MDF two-piece doors that are really tight and there's no chamfer on the back, you got to caulk it. You have to. If you don't, it looks like ass. And uh, I get a lot of messages from people just saying, I don't caulk ever. You should never, ever, ever, ever caulk. And, uh, and I'm like, well, you can do it and still not have it crack, believe it or not. Just don't put a bead on there so thick you got to pull off your sock and scrape it with your big toe. You're like, we cut the, the, the bead to the very finest and just enough so that the primer will bridge. And uh, we don't have problems, but I prefer not to, believe me, because that's labor I'd rather put into something else. Totally. I wonder if it, it also has to do with the climate that you're in. Is it, is it a fairly stable climate? Hell no. It's no. about as stable as you can get. So okay. it, that's it, no. it is, yeah, because we've got vast swings in temperature and vast swings in humidity. For the most part, in the winter here, the humidity drops as low as Phoenix. It's just like skin cracking, low, low, low humidity. So if anything is going to crack here, it cracks in the winter. And then spring comes and everything starts to expand a little bit. And all of a sudden, then that's when you'll see panels shifting. That's why exterior doors here, like wooden exterior doors, are such a nightmare. Yeah, so, we yeah, so what black, we used to do all the black horse exterior doors and he's decided to stick his neck way out and uh, actually just, he's putting an oil finish on them all. So I'll be interested to see how that holds up over the next few years. How's the maintenance plan with that? 
Yeah, I think so. I think uh, that's got to be what it is. And you know what? If it's done right, I'm sure those things will last forever. If you maintain oil, uh, penetrating oil, it's it's an awesome finish. It just, yeah. the second you let it go uh, two days too late, you're refinishing the whole door. Well, we know people are by their very nature what? Lazy. <laughs> and so eventually it'll start to slip. And so hopefully, hopefully they... I'll just package. If I do, if I coat one door with penetrating oil or even a, a clear oil or a clear varnish of any sort, I, I'm not walking away without them refusing a maintenance package. Because yeah. my job as a finisher is to come back every year and put a coat on it. Yeah. You clients got a million things to do. If I wait for them to call me, they're never calling me. Yeah. So put them on the schedule and we contact them. And it's a win-win. We're not refinishing doors. We get built-in recurring revenue and the client doesn't have to think about anything. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah, I like that. And uh, yeah, so I, I think it's going to do fairly well for them because uh, it's a different, I mean, it's bonding with the wood and the wood will still be able to move, you know, um, and if you maintain it every year, then that will hopefully keep moisture from getting in, in there and causing problems. So um, I'm happy to let Black Forest do that because I got my hands full doing other things. But um, yeah, up until now, it's been the old spraying polyurethanes on the exterior doors and uh, in a lot of cases, they do just fine. But, you know, when they're heavily exposed, self-exposure, you know, open to the elements, it's uh, it's just brutal, brutal, brutal. How many employees do you have? I've got nine. Are those all cleaners? Or no. no. So there's myself, two other people in the uh, front office. So I've got Richard and Teresa. So Teresa does all the – she answers the phones, does the books. Richard uh, manages the production schedule and does the estimates. Um, I just sit there and look good. No. <laughs> and, estimating software, right? Uh, no, we see the thing is, you know, we've get, um, we get drawings from all manners of different clients. So we like to estimate off the of drawings, but sometimes we just get cut lists and sometimes we just get, um, you know, like uh, a list of items they want finished with dimensions. So it's, it's, there's a whole different mixed bag of ways that we have to actually estimate. Uh, because we use a square footage formula, we, um, what we do is we break everything down, enter it into the software that, uh, that's one of the things that Richard has done is he's, he's built our software that manages our uh, production uh, manages our estimates, manages our costs, all of that kind of stuff. And it, it all analyzes it all together. And he enters all of that in. And then we actually know what our square foot cost price is for every kind of finish we've ever done. And whenever we do a new finish that we've never done before, we build that into the system so that if we ever do it again, you just enter the square footage in there and boom, there's your price. That's amazing. All right. Our final question my favorite is what is your most embarrassing moment in business? Most embarrassing moment in business. Well, project that went horribly wrong. Did you, what, what do you got for us? You know, I, I did have a project go horribly wrong. Um, and we actually lost one of our main clients over it. And this was not that long ago. It was about, uh, 
about eight years ago. And um, we switch. This isn't a funny story. It's 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 embarrassing in 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 the fact that it happens to anyone in business. Um, but there's a lot of good that came out of it. So, anyways, yeah. So we were in the middle of um, our supplier decided to drop his uh, distribution of a certain product line that we were used to using, and brought in a new product line. And we just kind of jumped on board as guinea pigs. We didn't really inform the client that there was anything different going on. And we found out through process um, that the product did not work very well. It was, it was also a post-cat conversion varnish, but you'll know that uh, conversion varnishes that have like, say, a 10% ratio, a 10 to 1 ratio, they're pretty easy to, you can make a little bit of a mistake either way. The catalyst isn't so strong that it, that it will kill you one way or the other. Yeah. This stuff had a 2.25% ratio. And <laughs> so the catalyst was extremely strong and you had to mix everything very precisely. But as a result too, it was also extremely sensitive to mill build. So we went from resistant to this product then resistant, you can build really nice, and it was a 10% catalyst. This stuff, because the catalyst was so strong, if you built anywhere past the mill recommended mill coverage, it was going to crack all over the place. We had five kitchens completely fail. They cracked all over the place. And that was an absolute nightmare. So for this one particular client, I think I probably somewhere between twenty and thirty thousand dollars later, before I could finally at least say I did everything I could. That actually, um, I was going to say, ended our relationship for quite a while. But we're we're they're actually back with us now, and we're working together nicely, and we're all happy that we're back together as one big happy family. Well, one of the things that I learned from that is because um, they were selling the idea of tinted primer and a clear finished top coat. And I get asked this all the time. And I'll, I got to say this before we go. Oh, yeah. It's a freaking horrible idea. And I'm going to tell you why. Unless you have a flat line that has exactly the same mill coverage on every single piece that you spray, you're going to end up with a checkerboard kitchen. And uh, it's not the tinted primer that's the problem. It's the clear. Unless you have exact same coat weight of the clear over top of every single piece, which is physically impossible if you actually are spraying by hand, yeah. um, they're not going to match up um, because there's just a slight color difference every time you have a variance of even half a mil to a mil. And so I actually had to go into, like I, said, I mentioned, five kitchens. There was the one with the cracking, and then there was these other four that had color variances all over the place. I actually had to refinish every one of those kitchens on my own dime. And um, it, was, it was an absolute nightmare. Um, I put a claim in, but, it, you know, it didn't cover anywhere near the damage that was done. Yeah. So, yeah, that was embarrassing and it sucked a lot and it was a hard lesson to learn. And I'm happy to share that with anyone who thinks that tinted primer and clear is a good color because that's being touted as the way to do it. If you're doing a glaze, that's a little bit different, right? Because you've already got some, you know, some live variants in there. But you got a white or an off-white, 
Darker colors, it won't matter, but a white or an off-white, boom. Good luck yeah. with that. And I think that's also just a good lesson. Like, don't experiment on clients' projects. Yeah, that's why they left us. They were really upset that we never told them about it. And absolutely, like, absolutely. Yeah. That was time. How do I, like someone asked last time, how do we up our game in finishing? Or how, if you're going to use a product for the first time, don't do it on a client's project. Come, uh, the, getting into FPE a few years ago changed my whole perspective on this. Because as painters, house painters are in, like, you don't go back to a shop and, like, test stuff on random stuff. And then go, you just, you paint and you keep moving. But when I started using fine paints, um, my consultant was like, you need to go to the shop. You need to take the paint. You need to break it. You need to figure out how much is too much thinner. You know, what does it look like when it has too much thinner? Like, figure out what's this coating all about. Break it so that you know where your parameters are. Yeah. Don't, I mean, and I've learned the hard way many times like you. Don't experiment on a project. We have that metal, Vera Metal project coming up. We made a big mock-up of sort of the wall, a narrow one, but the whole height. And we practiced keeping our wet edge for an eight-foot-long section before we ever went on site because – I don't want to show up and have to figure that out. It's going to be tough enough as is. Yeah. Go to the shop, take that extra time that you might feel like is a waste of money. It's actually the best investment you'll ever make. It'll save your ass. Yeah. yeah. No problem. That's good advice. I recently uh, did that where we're using a new conversion varnish high gloss. It's the highest gloss I've ever seen come out of off the gun. And uh, the solids on this stuff is 87% try to imagine that so it high gloss conversion varnish is already a really really hot finish as it is and then you add that kind of solid content to it you know you've got to slow it down so much to actually lay this stuff out in glass so we i had to do a lot of playing around back and forth and different thinning mixtures and different kinds of thinners and until I found the right mix before we jumped onto the job. I, I probably blew two gallons of this stuff, but I'll tell you what, when we actually did the job, it turned out absolutely amazing. And now we're getting more of this stuff coming in and we can feel confident going forward. Now we know how to price it. We know how to finish it. But yeah, I, I can't tell you how many times I learned the hard way learning on the job and just diving into a project when I was young and just, just do it because I, I, most of the shit I learned, I learned the hard way. Honestly, I, I made so many mistakes and that's probably where I learned so much because I've made so many dumb mistakes. And, uh, you know, I mean, that, if there's anything you can pass on to the young guys, it's like what not to do. I've got a, I've got a encyclopedia of what not to do. <laughs> me too and that, I, I, that's been my experience I was always trying all sorts of things and you know trying to learn but that also meant that I've made I've made so many mistakes you know but I think being an entrepreneur and a, and owning a business like you have to get comfortable making mistakes you just yeah. try to take the risk you know yeah for sure so yeah, no, it's been great I've enjoyed this talk and uh... yeah thanks for coming on yeah, you bet. Thanks for inviting me. And, uh, you know, this is my first live. Actually, I was thinking about doing live a while ago, and I just never did it. Cause, uh, um, but I, I'll probably um, do something 
you know, again in the future and I'll invite you in. I think uh, I'm going to be talking about this Vera Mill though, because I'm going to be playing with it over the next week or so. So uh, I'd, I'd love to pick your brains on what you've learned so far on that. See if, uh, see if we can't put something together. Awesome. All right. All right. Thanks, man. All right. Take, take it easy. Yeah. Wow, that guy's got a ton of knowledge. Um, thanks again, everybody, for uh, watching throughout that two-hour um, uh, interview. I think uh, this one hour, man, it's tough. You get these people with all this knowledge, and one hour is just not enough time to get all that out. Uh, we might do more two hours. I'll probably put a poll up to see, um, and maybe we'll vote and see if people want to extend it to two hours. I have some awesome guests coming up. Um, I am absolutely blanking on who's on Friday, um, but I will be posting that a little bit later. Who's on Friday? Um, Jack Andrews is going to be on Sunday night. Um, we also have uh, Zach from Detmore 101 coming on. He's, he's pretty entertaining, and we're going to get the perspective of a GC and how they look at painters. Um, but again, guys, thanks for coming. Thanks for watching. Uh, if you liked it, Please share it on your page. I'd love it to, to spread so more people can see this. We're going to be posting this on IG Live, and very soon they'll be up on YouTube and on a, in podcast form. Thanks, guys. Painted podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and is made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPaintEd.org.